Flowing from the highest mountain to the lowest valley. It touches those who are in the palaces. It touches those who are in the ghettos. It touches those who are in the jail cells. It touches those who are homeless. Thank you, Jesus. Because your blood has made provision for us. That we are able to be partakers of your goodness no matter where we are. We thank you for the abundance of your riches through the grace that you have given us. Thank you for everything that you have done. Thank you that you have called us for such a time as this. We glorify you. We give you praise. We give you honor. In Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen. If you just give a round of applause to the worship Amen. That's what you call untimed worship. <laughs> wow. As my wife was saying uh, earlier today, today is Yael's fourth birthday. Amen. And um, really thanking God for what he has done. Because four years ago, I remember what was going through my mind on the way to the hospital. When I got the phone call that my wife was like dilating, you know, that the baby was coming. You got to understand, 23 weeks in six days of pregnancy, Yael was expected to be born on the 1st of July, or at least the first week of July, and she was born in March. That shook me to my core when I got that call. And on the way to the hospital, <laughs> interesting enough, got into a car accident. <laughs> and I was in a car accident with somebody who was also from Georgia, out of all the people in Houston, I happened to be in an accident with somebody who was from Georgia. And the police did not even get there. So we just exchanged information, and then we went on our way. But the person that I hit was so kind and so generous, she understood what I was going through, because my mind was not in the right place. I was just trying to get to the hospital. And I get to the hospital, my wife is, she's shaking on the bed. I think they gave her some type of, of antidote, prescription, whatever you want to call it, medicine, uh, injection that just caused her to, to, to just, you know, to shake. And I think that the purpose of the injection was to slow down the contractions. So, and I get there and I'm just scared because you don't know what is about to happen. Because, again, this is very, very, very early. And the doctor said that um, 
because of how early she was born, they're not going to hook her up to any uh, life support system. She has to fight on her own. She has to prove that she wants to be here. In other words, if she was to die, she was just going to have to die. I had to emotionally detach myself from her because I didn't know what to expect. That whole time I was just focused on my wife because I didn't know if Yael was going to make it or not. I was scared. I, didn't, I, I couldn't even pray. I was just scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. But when I, look in the di- when I looked into the corner of the room where, where Yael was at and the doctor was there, and I seen them just give a thumbs up, I knew everything was going to be all right. <laughs> and I knew she was going to make it. And they said that she's breathing She's demonstrating life on her own. God is so good. Because the story could have been something else. They could have been pronouncing her death, but they pronounced that she's living, that she has life. And so we thank God for his strength that is like no other. We thank God for his peace that is like no other. We thank God for his joy that is like no other. That because he is the one who lives, Yael is able to live and celebrate her fourth birthday today. We just thank God. Amen. Amen. I spoke to the pastor last night, and um, I think they're like 12 hours ahead. (laughs) I didn't even expect a call from him, but it was just cool to hear his voice. And he was just saying, like, how much hard work it is. Like, you know, they've basically 14 hours just going. Only 90, maybe 90 minutes to relax. But they're out there doing the work. We thank God for a pastor that we serve under who is committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not committed to showing how he got a Rolls Royce or bragging about mansions. He's committed to the gospel. Because that's the kind of heart that God calls us to have, that we're committed to the gospel. Amen? So um, we can just turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. We have been discussing this topic of manifesting Jesus. In other words, making Jesus relevant Popular, famous, in a culture that deems that he is irrelevant and outdated. How can we manifest Jesus in a society that is not looking forward to hearing about Jesus? How can we manifest Jesus in a society that thinks that he didn't exist? Or the fact that he, is, that he did exist that he is responsible for the atrocities that were committed in his name, how can we make Jesus relevant to this society? What does it mean to manifest Jesus in our homes, in the workplace, in our everyday goings? How do we manifest Jesus to the poor, to the disenfranchised, to the marginalized, the lost and left out? How do we manifest Jesus 
to the immigrants who are coming into our nations each and every day, whether legally or illegally, how do we manifest Jesus? It was interesting, um, the message that Pastor Sheena preached last week. And I've been meditating on this particular passage for quite some time. And after hearing his sermon last week, I was just confident that this was what God wanted me to talk about. God is calling us as a body to reflect the character and the works of our Messiah. God has called us to be the physical representation of the Messiah to the nations by taking on the role of a servant rooted in the attitude of humility. This is how we manifest Jesus. The posture of humility is the manifestation of Jesus throughout the earth. So the title of today's message is The Exaltation of Humility. And the focus of today's sermon is going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and, it's, and it reads, and we're going to take it from the NASV if you don't mind. That is my favorite, favorite, favorite version of the Bible. It says, having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Next verse. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Next verse. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, the Father, of God the Father. One of the biggest turnoffs for me when it comes to televised evangelism is in many cases the lack of humility that is demonstrated in either the lifestyle of the preachers or the pastors or their acts of ministry. They heavily televise miracles they perform not as a means of bringing glory to God but as a means to to push up or to boast their personality, their persona. And I find that so troubling. And what comes to my mind is this one particular pastor that's in, I want to say South Africa, but I'm not sure. Is it South Africa? Oh, everybody, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> the first time I seen a video of this pastor, I mean, this this was an, you would have thought that this was the G20 summit. I mean, he had a, a nice, nice, white, luxurious car followed by an entourage of other vehicles. You would have thought that this was the president of the United States. I mean, he honestly, to me, was rolling better than the president of the United States. I mean, he was, it looked great. 
I mean, you would have thought that these were generals that were standing out, saluting him as he was making his way to the church. And he gets to the church. He steps out of his car. All the cameras was on him. Red carpet rolled out. I was like, man, this guy is a superstar. And while they're giving this narration of this pastor, the narrator kept bragging about how this man was truly a prophet of God. I mean, declarations after declarations speaking of how awesome this guy is. And, you're th- and I'm thinking to myself, where is God being exalted in the midst of all of this? Where is God being glorified in the midst of all of this? But it's not just in the African nations. Another pastor, won't say his name, but he got this title, he's called a prophet. And if you've ever seen his videos, I mean, he got a golden microphone. He's, he's doing all these Michael Jackson dances. I mean, he looks almost like Michael Jackson. I mean, his dances are similar to Michael Jackson. He's doing all these theatrics, and people are just falling all over the place. And you're like, wow, where is God being exalted in all of this? We live in a culture where you got shows like the, Preacher of L- the Preachers of L.A., where it's all about the lifestyle that these preachers have, where they tell you about the things that they have, and where is, the, where is God being glorified? Where is God being exalted? I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't fault preachers for having nice things. I mean, I think it's pretty cool. If you worked hard, you deserve whatever, you, you know, the hard work, you know, the fruits of your labor, you deserve those things. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. My issue is more so this self-entitled culture, this, this notion that I have the rights to these things rather than thank God because of his grace that I have these things. Where is the exaltation of God? Where is the humility? So Paul is the writer of this letter. Paul, who is well known to the Jewish people by the Hebrew name Saul, was initially very prideful in his piety. And it was interesting, we're talking about that this morning. He came from a well-established family. He was extremely intelligent, having received formal education in Judaism. Matter of fact, he, Paul would say that he was excelling even better than his counterparts, better than his peers. He was progressing higher and higher. He was trained by one of the most, one of the most famous or best known rabbis of that time. He was a tent maker, which was a highly skilled trade, so he was always in demand. He could afford to travel throughout the Roman Empire, in which the Gentiles knew him as Paul, and he was trusted by the Sanhedrin. He had direct access to the high priest. This is the kind of profile that Paul carried. However, when he encountered the resurrected Messiah on his way to Damascus, his world was completely rocked. He was humbled, no longer identified himself with his accomplishments or his ability to keep the law. His his identity was in Yeshua the Messiah, 
which which impacted his understanding of the law. Paul went from being a notorious critic and terrorist of the church to now becoming the biggest, if if not one of the biggest, proclaimers of the gospel. Paul was well, well aware of the grace of God that was present in his life and ministry, that it was, it was the very breath that he breathed. And his successes as a minister of the gospel also brought major critics. Those who doubted his apostleship, who would wonder, why is it that this man who claims to be a, an apostle who was called out by God is facing all these trials and tribulations. They questioned his, his apostleship. So Paul is here writing to the church in Philippi from his imprisonment in Rome. And this letter was written in part to address the concerns that he had with the fellow preachers of the gospel And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, you don't have to turn there, but basically it was, it was, there were those who operated in a spirit of competition and self-ambition, seeking to rival the apostle because they were envious of him. They were preaching from a place of, of envy, a place of jealousy. And this is completely unhealthy for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The attitude and motivation is not healthy for preaching the gospel. It is not healthy for the body of Christ. It is counter kingdom culture. I remember going to this one church to um, do poetry. And after the church, because I was a a new guest there, I was uh, ushered into the place where they welcomed all new, all, you know, all guests, kind of like how we do at the end of our service. And, um, the, the sister that was, that was hosting um, the, the uh, welcoming ceremony, she kept bragging about how their church is the greatest church on the face of this planet. And she kept saying that over and over and over. And so you, and it's like you walk out of the service thinking to yourself, like, man, maybe their church is the greatest church on the, on the face of this planet. But... At the same time, what are we exalting? Are we exalting God or are we, are, are we exalting our ministries? I had a problem with that. What message are we sending to others in the way that we interact? What message are we sending to others in our workplaces? What message are we sending to others in our schools? What message are we sending to others in our families when we're hanging out with friends? What message are they hearing? Paul encourages us in Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And this brings us to the main passage 
of Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, which was actually a song that was sung among the believers at that time. And Paul uses this song in this letter. One of the main things that I love about this letter is the fact that Paul is encouraging the church to display humility, to, to, to walk in humility, but he's comparing, he's just saying that this humility that you are to display, this humility that you are to walk in should be comparable to that of Christ Jesus. The same mind, attitude, mental disposition must be like that which was in Christ Jesus. This passage mirrors the book of Isaiah chapter 53 verses 1 through 10 perfectly. And I believe that Paul had Isaiah 53 in mind when he wrote this letter. And so he builds his case by giving us the Messiah's credentials. Number one, he is saying that the Messiah existed in the form of God. John chapter 1 verse 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, that is God has spoken to us in these last days in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he, that is his son, made the world. Or I'm sorry, he who was God made the world. In other words, God created all things through his son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10. And this basically records the father saying to the son, you, Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. So Paul establishes the credentials of the Messiah by identifying him as the one who is God. He is in the very form of God. His very nature, his very essence is everything that the Father is. He is God. The father calls his son Yahweh and credits the son as the creator. The son existed as the almighty God. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 goes on to say that who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Verse 7, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2, you don't have to go there. It states, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, even though he is entitled to the praises of heaven, even though he is credited with creating everything that existed, both Isaiah and Paul make it clear that he set aside his glory and veiled his glory and took on the role of a servant. The thing that terrified Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, that thing that, that made Isaiah repent 
of everything that he could possibly repent of, the thing that made Isaiah even repent on behalf of the nation was not evident when you saw Christ. The display of glory was not evident at the sight of the Messiah. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. When Yeshua prayed to the Father in John chapter 17, specifically verse 5, he requested that the Father glorify him with the same glory that he had with the Father before the world was created. Why did he need to pray this? He imposed upon himself the limitations of humanity, and as an Israelite, he subjected himself to the Torah and the Torah's demands for righteousness. In other words, how Galatians chapter 4 states that he was made under the law, or he was born under the law. He didn't come, he didn't just come as a human being, but he took on the lowest position in humanity. He didn't come as a king to unseat Herod or Caesar. He didn't ask for a lofty job title. He became a servant. In, in the Greek, the word servant is doulos, meaning a slave, one who belongs to another. He became a slave both to the father as well as a slave to humanity. He is functioning without any rights. He is not self-entitled. He is committed to the father's mission and will not exercise his own authority. He didn't exercise his own rights. He always said that these words that I speak are, these words are from the Father. Are we walking in humility? Are we completely devoted to the mission of the church? Or are we always complaining about what our church has or what our church doesn't have? Are we com completely devoted to the vision and the mission of our employers? Or are we always complaining that they don't pay us enough? Are we walking in humility? Three things about humility. Number one, humility is a state of mind. It's an attitude. It's a mindset. Number two, humble people are always seeking to improve the conditions of others and the environment, even if it means not getting what they want. They do not live for self. A great example of this would be Dr. Martin Luther King. Last month was, was uh, Black History Month. And the reasons why we are able to celebrate and to live as people of color in this nation, where we can sit wherever we want to sit on the bus and actually go out and vote, exercise that right to vote, is because of the works of people like Dr. King and other leaders at that time. It's 2019, and Dr. King cannot celebrate these achievements. He cannot sit at the front of the, or, or the back of the, he cannot choose anywhere on the bus to sit with us. But he labored 
for those things to happen. So even though he didn't see it in his time, his children and his children's children are able to see it. Even though he didn't see it in his time, the nations in which he was representing is able to see the achievements of his works. Why? He was a humble person. Number three, humble people do not brag about their humility. (laughs) They are more concerned about the mission. They are not trying to magnify themselves. You ever hear anybody brag about how humble they are? They are not humble. (laughs) Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 in the Amplified. It says, after after he was found, amplified, amplified, there we go. And after he, he had appeared in human form, he abased and humbled himself still further and carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even death on the cross. Notice that death was mentioned twice. The reason being is because he didn't die a natural death. He didn't die a death of old age. He died a death that was a humiliating death. He died as a result of crucifixion. He didn't try to cheat death. He knew death awaited him. He accepted death as the Father's will. Roman crucifixion was just not a physically torturous uh, event, but it was torturing to the mind and emotions. It was an embarrassing and disgraceful form of capital punishment. The guilty were beaten to the point of disfigurement and beyond recognition with their entire body exposed. In other words, he was completely naked on the cross. In the movies, they try to protect our innocence by putting a cloth on him to cover his parts, but in the actual crucifixion, there was nothing covered. You were disgraced. You were abused. You were brought to a point of nothingness. In the eyes of the unbelieving Jewish community, Yeshua was viewed as the guilty party. He was the outcast. He was cursed. He was unworthy and and, and undeserving of life, deserving of being discarded as gutter trash. He became the despised. What you think about your enemy, the people that you hate the most, how you might make fun of people like R. Kelly right now, who right now is probably the most despised in our culture, how even Michael Jackson is now becoming very despised in our culture, how Hitler is to to the Jewish people because of the Holocaust, that that image of anger, that image of of hate that you have towards, towards somebody like Hitler, that's how they saw Jesus. They looked upon him with disgust. So they gladly gave him the death sentence. He was a completely innocent man, but he was guilty 
as a billion criminals in the eyes of the Roman justice system. And because he was humble and and loyal to the father's mission as a servant, he did not choose to defend himself. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this in the voice of the Messiah. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 22, verse 6 and 8. He says, but I am a worm and no man. He, he couldn't even count himself as a man. He said, I'm a worm. I hate worms. I step on them all the time when it rains outside. Gladly. <laughs> he says, I'm a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me laugh at me and mock me. They shoot, they shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, he trusted and rolled himself on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeking that he delights in him. Man, he was humble to the deaf. Worthy of being praised in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of men, he was nothing. Let's continue. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. For this reason also, and I'm doing this out of the NASB. Sorry about that. I keep going back and forth. Certain Certain versions bring out things that other versions don't bring out. But in the NASB, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in the earth and the heavens and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to try to summarize this as best as possible, but I do encourage you to come on this Wednesday at 730. I'm going to go a little bit deeper. It says, as we look at these passages, we have to remember that this is in the context of humiliation to exaltation. Why was the Messiah executed? Why was he considered worthy of death? Why did he die? He died because he claimed to be Yahweh's Messiah. He died because he claimed to be the Son of God, which was considered blasphemy and a violation of the law of Moses, which carried a death sentence. For a human being to make such a claim was an extreme offense, which not only brought a curse on the guilty and a death sentence upon him, but also brought shame on his family. The resurrection is vindication. Like God's stamp of approval that he was indeed telling the truth as well as affirmation that his life, his miracles, his promises, as well as our total salvation is guaranteed and is valid. God rewarded the Messiah in three ways. One, he exalted him to the highest place. He ascended bodily. His resurrection was a physically a physical body resurrection. 
The same body that was seen as his shame is now glorified and put forth like a display for the world to see. That which was seen as a burden is now seen, is now the key to our liberation. He has been restored. I was talking about Black History Month. Black History Month was a time in which we honored and exalted those who were despised, humiliated, viewed as shameful in this society for their contributions towards the very society that deemed them shameful. Somehow, people who were brought here forcibly away from their native lands, demeaned, brutalized, considered three-fifths humans, subjected to unjust laws, and lynched on southern trees with nooses around their necks were able to produce children who will become wealthy, highly educated, and productive citizens. From humiliated black slaves, we now have medical professionals, legal professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers, educators, professional athletes, computer programmers, designers, scholars, scientists, the list goes on and on. And in many cases, we have people from among us who have graduated at the top of their class. Humiliation to exaltation. God exalted him to the highest place. As the Jewish African-American poet by the name of Drake would say, started from the bottom, but now we're here. I knew that would wake up some people. (laughs) Because God has exalted the humiliated, you cannot talk about American history without talking about black history. I I saw on the news recently a a young uh, African-American girl named Jordan Nixon age 17, got accepted to 39 colleges and universities. Humiliated at night, but exalted in the morning. Because, sorry, so if you find yourself in humiliating circumstances, remain humble and patient because our Father who is sovereign, will exalt you to the highest place. And if you and your generation, and it's not just going to be you, it's going to be your generation as well. James chapter 4, verse 10 reads, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So number one, God exalted him to the highest place. Number two, God gave him a name above every name. Not only did God exalt him to the highest place in the sense of physical elevation, but also entitled. Remember, he was born a slave, a servant. But when God exalted him to a higher place, God restored and magnified his reputation, his character, his recognition to the universal kingship and fulfillment of God's promise to David. He is no longer a servant, but a king. Psalm chapter 110 verse 1 says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He now has privilege and esteem. He he who was once humiliated, beaten, spit upon by kings of the earth is now addressed as the king of kings. Now they have to answer to him. 
He who was once called a liar, a blasphemer, and Beelzebub is now revealed to be the righteousness of God. He who was considered worthy of death and recommended to be blotted out of our consciousness and disgrace, executed for a crime that he was now guilty of, committing at the hands of the Roman government, now he is called the source of everlasting life, by which generations after generations know his name. And they worship him. When you take on the attitude of humility, God will make you, God will make your name great. Ask Dr. Martin Luther King what it means to have your name respected globally. When you humble yourself and you think highly of others, God will make your name great. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 1 states, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. When you have a good name, you have favor. When you have a good name, your children's children have favor. Anywhere the children of Dr. Martin Luther King go, they have favor. They're respected. Red carpets are rolled out for them. Not because of what they did, but because what their father did. Because he has a good name. Number three, not only did God exalt him to the highest place and given him a name above every name, God revealed his glory in him. The greatest honor that you can have is for people to see the glory of God revealed in you. The exaltation of the resurrected Messiah concludes in verse 11 with every tongue confessing Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word Lord in the text was used as a replacement for his divine name, Yahweh. Paul was citing Isaiah chapter 45 verses 20 to 25 in which Yahweh declares to Isaiah that all the nations will turn to him and be saved. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 45, uh, verse 20 to 25. And it says, verse 20, yes. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me. Who are we turning to? Yahweh. And be saved. All the ends of the earth, including Vietnam, for I am God and there are no others. And there is no other. Verse 23, for I swore by myself, this is Yahweh speaking, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, who? Yahweh. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Verse 24. They will say of me, Yahweh, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. 
men will come to him and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. Isn't that exactly what happened when we looked at, when we looked at Philippians chapter 2? They, they, they looked at him, they, they, they were angry at him. But God vindicated the Messiah. Verse 25, it says that in Yahweh, all the offsprings of Israel will be justified and will glory. Paul is, is drawing a connection to the Father being glorified in conjunction with the nations, confessing that the Son, Messiah Yeshua, is Yahweh. What is the practical application? When we humble ourselves and walk in humility, God will reveal his glory through us. We will find that those who despise us, those who hate us, those who are angry at us, who reject us, will seek to know the God that we serve. Those who desire to destroy your reputation, whether it is at your job or, or at your school or wherever you are, they will turn to glorify God because of you. Why? Because you have submitted yourself, you have humbled yourself in the eyes of the God that you serve. All we have to do is humble ourselves and he will demonstrate his glory through us in due time. How do we humble ourselves? By esteeming others higher than us by esteeming the mission of God higher than our own personal mission, by esteeming the vision of God and what God wants for the entire earth higher than our personal desires for goals and achievements. Humble us. Let us humble ourselves so that the God that we serve will be glorified and in due time, he will reveal his glory through us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father God, that you have called us to be your servants. And you've called us to demonstrate a posture of humility. We pray, Father God, that as we continue to humble ourselves in you, that people who see us will glorify you. That people who see us will exalt you. That they will see your glory. That they will see the manifestation of your righteousness. That because we are humble, Father God, that they will, they, they will see your healing, that they will see a demonstration of your love, a demonstration of your grace. And so, Father God, we say that in the name of Jesus, that each and every one of us in here, and that as we're leaving today, that we will walk in humility, that we will walk in humbleness, that we will demonstrate an attitude of of, of humility to our friends and to our enemies, that we will be servants to our friends and to our enemies, that they will see your glory. In Jesus' name, we pray.